This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Three types of invasive octocoral have been found in Pearl Harbor. The most recent species were discovered during an environmental assessment conducted for the planned shipyard modernization project at the military base. The soft corals are said to be spread out over 90 acres, and officials have been talking about how to deal with removing the octocoral. Not enough is known about how best to do that. Federal and state officials uh, are still talking uh, with the military about the best fix. The coral is away from where the bulk of the shipyard construction is to take place, but no one knows for sure if the corals came as part of an illegal aquarium trade or if they came um, on ships coming into the harbor. We talked to Kim Fuller, biologist with the Aquatics Division of the State Land and Natural Resources Department, who is working on the project. What we have out there is the species name is called Eunomia or Unomia stolonifera, but the common name is called Pulsing Xenia. So it is a soft coral, and it's something called an octocoral. It has been documented to be invasive, particularly in Venezuela. And it's common in the aquarium trade. So people often will keep this in aquariums. But in Hawaii, it is illegal to have because it's only legal to import if you have a special permit, which allows you to import them for research. So it's investing about 90-acre area at the mouth of Pearl Harbor. And it's been observed overgrowing hard substrate. And in Venezuela, where it has been documented to be invasive, it really has just dominated the benthos. So a study recently came out that said in areas that it has invaded, about 30 to 80% of the benthos is covered in the soft invasive octocoral. And stony coral diversity is reduced in the areas that the invasive octocoral has been found. So we don't know how this stuff got here, whether somehow it got snuck in and dumped in the ocean or if it hitchhiked on a ship? So it could definitely have hitchhiked on a ship. It's been documented to spread via biofouling. So that's when it grows on a hull of a ship or something like that. But it also could have been dumped, unfortunately, although it is illegal to dump any non-native animal from captivity into our natural waters. It does occur. And it is illegal to import into Hawaii for personal aquarium keeping. However, we have seen some Craigslist posting and online posting of people who have claimed to have it for sale online. Oh, that's terrible. So, yeah, it could have been somebody just dumped it and now it's a problem in that harbor. Yes, and we particularly suspect that it may have been a dump because we also have found another introduced species of octocoral. So the dominant species that we're dealing with mostly is this pulsing xenia. But another species, we got the genetics done for it with the TuneIn Lab at HIMP. And the Kenya coral tree, octocoral, is also now known to be present in Pearl Harbor. And is that also something in the aquarium trade? It is. It's common in the aquarium trade as well. It hasn't been documented to be invasive elsewhere in the wild, but it has been shown to be invasive within the aquarium. And there was another type of soft coral that was reported back in the 70s, a type of, I think it's called snowflake coral. Yes, so snowflake coral is also an octocoral. It has invasive behaviors. It particularly was competing with black coral, which we all know how valuable black coral could be to people who might utilize it for jewelry or things like that. However, the genetics have been studied on snowflake coral, and it seems to be it is likely native in the Pacific. So the theory was that it came from the Atlantic, but a genetic study in 2010 showed that the genetic diversity is actually quite high in the Pacific. And so we cannot definitively say that snowflake coral was introduced, but it certainly has invasive properties. Well, what do we do about these corals? How do we get rid of them? Well, there are multiple issues. You know, once something gets established, particularly in a marine habitat, it's extremely difficult, time-consuming, and expensive to be able to deal with. So the state of Hawaii, along with other federal partners, has been participating with the Navy to 
brainstorm the tools that might be available. And the Navy has also found initial funding to contract eradication attempts. So some tools that might be used could be heat. You know, you could even do a smothering technique where you put tarps and maybe sandbags on top. Sometimes you might want to use a chemical such as bleach and tarp, but I think that Navy is looking, and anyone who is looking to eradicate something might try to go with the least invasive methodologies first. So right now, just a list of tools that might be available or possible have been, you know, developed, but work is probably going to start with something similar, I would imagine, to maybe just some tarps trying to smother it or manual removal. We have to be very careful about manual removal because these invasive octocrawls can reproduce via fragmentation. So if they break apart into multiple pieces, that's actually creating multiple organisms that could continue to live. And so how deep are these corals? I believe that The Navy has only found them to maybe the maximum depth of 50 feet. But I know in Venezuela, they found the minimum distribution of the octocoral at 29 meters. So that's, you know, 100 feet deep or more. But here in Hawaii, in the harbor, it's much shallower than that, at least the known distribution that has been found. Now, I think it was the snowflake coral that I read doesn't really like sunlight, that it likes shady areas like harbors? Correct. So the snowflake coral competes with black coral, which like those actually grow quite deep. So the snowflake coral, I think, is a little bit different than this type of octocoral. The snowflake coral does well with low light, but this octocoral, it seems to do well with light because it even has been found in shallow areas of less than a foot deep at low tide. You've been meeting about it since its discovery, but when will we actually start going out in the field and doing something about it? Because it's within Pearl Harbor, it is a sensitive area. So the work right now has been initially funded by the Navy through contractors that have approval to work in the area. The eradication attempt might be you know, as soon as a month from now or so. And the state and federal partners, we are working with the Navy to gain access. Uh, Just because it's such a sensitive area, we need to see if dive operations are feasible because there are scientific access requirements, dive program requirements, and safety clearances needed to work within the the naval waters within Pearl Harbor. But the distribution, the baseline distribution surveys have already been done by the contractors. Okay, so you sort of mapped out where the stuff is. Yes, and outside of the naval defense waters, the state has already checked suspect areas, you know, that are adjacent to it, areas like near Kehi, small boat harbor, and things like that. And we have not found it in, you know, somewhat similar habitat areas, but... We also would like to reach out to our water users if they see anything unusual to report it. And you could go ahead and email the DLNR's Aquatic Invasive Species email or visit our website. You can find our email there. And then what, what do these things look like? The pulsing xenia is sort of white and brown. Sometimes it can almost look black. So it's soft. It's not like hard corals. Mm -hmm. We only have a few very small species of soft corals in Hawaii that are native. So if anything's bigger than a couple centimeters long or bigger than a penny, that would be of concern to us if it's soft. And the branches on top, it looks kind of like an anemone, sort of brown, fluffy tops. And pulsing xenia is known to sort of appear to be moving even Mm -hmm. without high water motion. That's where it gets its name. I have already mentioned that it is illegal to import any kind of soft coral and keep it for aquarium use. But also, if you do have an aquarium, regardless of the status of how legal it was to obtain the species within it, please do not dump them into our natural waterways. This is very risky as it could endanger our native habitats 
species as well as, you know, even eventually our economy. It could severely impact tourism, not to mention just our way of life. That was state biologist Kim Fuller talking with us about the types of invasive soft coral that have been found in Pearl Harbor and the plan to deal with it. So how soon could something happen? Well, the Navy says it's looking at putting divers in the water sometime next month. The new corals were discovered during an environmental assessment that was being conducted for the nearly $3 billion shipyard modernization project at Pearl Harbor. Uh, The Navy says the corals are in an area away from the construction work. is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. We have a story about a barbershop quartet coming up later in the show, so we're keeping a musical theme for today's Backyard Quiz. Do you remember the island-born composer known as the Dean of Hawaiian Music? Through his songbooks, his original compositions, and his work as a band leader, he did much to increase the popularity of Hawaiian music around the world. He was one-quarter Hawaiian and was raised among the Ali'i. Queen Emma was his godmother, mother, and Queen Lili'uokalani was his music teacher. He was a member of the first graduating class of the Kamehameha School for Boys and grew up speaking fluent Hawaiian. Although many of his compositions introduced more complex European harmonies to the music, he was a strict traditionalist who insisted on the correct use of the Hawaiian language in his songs. His best-known uh, tunes are probably... The Hawaiian Wedding Song and Song of the Islands. Do you know his name? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes community. NairitHawaii.com. I'm Carol Hills. Health officials in Australia celebrate. HIV transmission rates have been virtually eliminated in parts of Sydney, an area once known as the heart of the AIDS epidemic. There's no one more thrilled than I am that we've reached this stage. I am just ecstatic. Fighting HIV AIDS in Sydney, next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission with guidance on how to help keep families safe at home, such as placing carbon monoxide alarms in the hallway outside of bedroom areas and testing them regularly. More at cpsc.gov. Things we take for granted, like regular mail service. If you happen to live in a rural area, chances are it's something you desire. HPR Sabrina Bowden joins us this morning to talk about the U.S. Postal Service. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So the Hawaii County Council unanimously passed a resolution urging the United States Postal Service to increase postal service infrastructure in the Puna District on Hawaii Island. And it's important to explain that there's no Puna Post Office, but Puna refers to this district, and there are a few 
different offices within there, including POA and the KAL post offices. And what this resolution is urging is for the USPS to expand services, which could be anything from updating buildings to workforce. And when I talk to some residents and what's included in this resolution, the issues mainly concern the post offices that are outdated. And John Olson lives in the district, and he talked a little bit about what it's like living out there. The post office, the building you're looking at in Pahoa, was built when I was still a child. And uh, I just turned 79. And it was built for a plantation town. It was not intended to serve anywhere near the vastness of the area that it currently is being expected to do. And it has been an issue since, well, since the 70s. And residents often find themselves in long lines, traveling far to pick up their mail and delayed service. And that's pretty similar to other rural areas in Hawaii. I know when I lived on Kauai, it was an issue out in Anahola where I lived. And Olson has worked on three iterations of the county's community development plan. He chaired the Puna portion for the first time in 1993, and he says this has always been top of their mind. People try to get there when they know there are people working in the building. I mean, we've had a number of incidences at the post office where people have been mugged, being there in the early morning hours or in the evening. I mean, it's a matter of record. And most people try to make it during the day, even if it means standing in long lines. And a lot of the people that you see standing in those long lines, you wonder how it is they're still standing because it. It very much trends to be a disabled group, sitting in their, their fold-down walkers and their wheelchairs and, you know, all of that. So Councilmember Matt Connelly-Kleinfelder introduced the non-binding resolution, and he argues that population growth should warrant a change. Between census counts in 2010 and 2020, the district's grown about 20 percent, and it's the same change that led to redistricting. He shared what he'd like to see the region do. I would like to see um, either larger post offices. Um, some of them, like the Mountain View Post Office, there's a crosswalk in front of the post office. So the parking is extremely limited. I would say no more than five or six vehicles at one time. And we've had at least one death in the last couple of years. In, in that same area, someone trying to cross the crosswalk to get to the post office was hit by a car. Or there was an accident and the vehicle struck him. Um, the community has been asking me for this for years, and all of the facilities are just undersized. So either increased in size, uh, increases in parking, relocated to accommodate more parking, more space, everything. I mean, we we have grown exponentially in Pona, and the post office infrastructure has stayed exactly the same. So I reached out to the United States Postal Service, and the Pune District covers the two main facilities and has some satellite offices, and there aren't any plans for new post offices on the Big Island nor anywhere within the state. When Councilmember Connelly Kleinfelder reached out to the congressional delegation, they said that they wanted to also see some change, but they weren't able to kind of act on anything as of late. So both Olson and Connelly Kleinfelder cited disparities as another reason for why there should be more increased infrastructure. So we have the highest people who are unserved by broadband. We have folks who need this assistance. We don't get mail. Mail is the lifeline then for people who don't have access to other forms of, you know, connections in their life. So if we don't do this, we really are doing a disservice to the people in our community. So they passed this resolution unanimously last week, and what that means is they're going to kind of send these letters out showing their support for increased infrastructure. Yeah, and and we all know, you know, the problems that the Postal Service has Mm -hmm. had, the challenges over the years, you know, I mean, even just during the holiday season, you know, they have to push to get temporary uh, hires just to help with the extra load of packages and everything else uh, Mm -hmm. during the holiday season. And the issue is, is when you have such an old post office and these older vehicles, they're not equipped to carry the weight of certain things. I think during COVID, we kind of grew this reliance and dependence on purchasing more things online, getting more things delivered to us. So as we're 
we just have more reliance on the Postal Service, and that doesn't mean or it doesn't equate to them getting more money to be able to update their facilities or be able to hire more people. Yeah, I think we just increased the price of a stamp, too, I think. <laughs> but yeah, it, it is a challenge for a system and a service that many communities rely on. But, you know, we're not alone. There are many communities in uh, states across the country mm-hmm. where, yeah, they don't have service like that as well. So tough thing to have to deal with. But thank you so much, Sabrina. Thanks, Catherine. We've been talking to Sabrina Bowden about the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, No plans to expand here in the state. Look for her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Civil Beat has an interesting array of stories it published today and over the weekend, but because today is the first day of classes for public school students, we're going with the story about air conditioning. Editor Chad Blair joins us for today's Reality Check to talk about it. Good morning, Chad. Uh, yes, good morning, Catherine. Happy first day of school for the <laughs> yes. DOE. And uh, not coincidentally, it's kind of hot out there. <laughs> it was 88 yesterday uh, in Honolulu. Not quite as bad as it is elsewhere, but it does make it timely, this new story from Madeline List. She's a new reporter for us. And it's on the fact that, I mean, it's almost a broken record here. How long have we been talking about lack of air conditioning in public schools? Well, Madeline looked back, it's hard to believe, but back in 2016, when Governor Ige and the legislature allocated $100 million, about 7000 the state's 11,000 classrooms didn't have any AC. Well, it's improved, but it still is a long way to go. About 3,400 of those classrooms still statewide lack air conditioning, and that's the focus of the today's story. And we're not just talking the individual units. We're also talking upgrades for infrastructure to handle all the additional um, electricity demands. Right. It's complicated. Do you have to repair, replace a window, for example? How does that affect other uh, electricity use. Madeline opens her story uh, with an uh, intermediate school teacher in Hilo, Hilo Intermediate, uh, and he teaches social studies. And he actually has 20 plus, more than 20 fans in his classroom circulating. He's actually got a spreadsheet. He's been tracking the temperatures over the years. And he says consistently, his classroom, it's its in the, the 80 degree range. You add in humidity when it's really muggy outside, that's more like the 90s. And this teacher told Madeline, no wonder some of his students are not only at their desk dripping in sweat, but they can't concentrate. They can't understand the lesson plan they're being presented. Well, we do know that, uh, you know, there have been stories about the attempts to help things along, you know, by creating solar uh, units as well, but that hasn't turned out the best. <laughs> no, best that outcome. was that was in fact uh, in in the words of HSTA's uh, leader Osatui, he called that a disaster, really a fiasco for what happened. These solar powered AC units, uh, in many cases, failed, uh, and now need to be replaced, and that's a, a very embarrassing thing. Uh, Randy Tanaka, who handles uh, facilities and operations for the DOE, uh, did speak uh, with. Um, with Madeline to give her an update on how things are going. Currently, about $10 million has been allocated from the legislature and the governor this year, last year, to get more schools, more classrooms AC. That'll amount to maybe 860 more classrooms uh, getting that air conditioning that is so needed. Tanaka's message is, you know, hang in there, we're coming. Uh, But the slow pace is a constant theme. You're hearing uh, from, from teachers, from advocates, we're saying you got to do this faster. Well, I was particularly struck by the fact that, you know, you folks asked for a list of the classrooms, right, that had yet to be um, uh, addressed. And uh, she was told that, no, we're not going to provide this to you. (laughs) (laughs) Not only that, but Randy Tanaka uh, explained why. Uh, The the concern was if people, I mean, there is such a list. They know, the DOE knows where it's going to, where the AC needs are, but we're talking about you know, thousands of classrooms statewide. Only the DOE knows that comprehensive list, but they're not going to release it because, according to Naka, it would 
I'm not making this up, create anxiety on the part of those schools that are lower priority, if you will. I, I don't I don't know that it would. Uh, certainly, they must already be anxious <laughs> with temperatures such as they are. Uh, that is something that is frustrating folks like, remember Corey Rosenley? He was the former HSTA head. I think he ran for office. And he, he's a he's a teacher out at Campbell High School. Uh, I believe it's Campbell High. But Campbell was an area where it was ground zero for these, these warm classrooms. Fortunately, Campbell's doing much better when it comes to AC. Uh, but this lack of transparency is what, what Rosenlee and others are saying. Come on, at least tell us when it's coming so we can, I don't know, think ahead, uh, have, a, have a goal to look forward to. Yeah, I mean, I just found that pretty stunning. Uh, it's like, come on, I think it's public record time here. <laughs> you know, just <laughs> yeah. disclose. I mean, what's the big deal? Are you creating anxiety? I don't know. I imagine those teachers are probably uh, hot under the collar over that. <laughs> Very funny. Yes. Well, this much we can provide you, complete transparency. There are reports of teachers handing out Gatorade and popsicles uh, to their students and also talking to parents, hitting them up for money to help uh, find ways to keep things cooler. Maybe buy another fan for that social studies teacher who has 20 fans in his classroom. Yeah, and the temperatures are just going to get uh, warmer. So yep, that's it's too August. Bad. Yes, it is. August, September, October. Ugh. <laughs> All right, Ugh. but thanks so much, Chad. Sure thing. Bye, that, was, that was editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read Madeline's story at civilbeat.org. HPR Generation Listen invites you to Trivia Night every first Monday of the month at Village Bottle Shop and Tasting Room in Kaka'ako. It's an opportunity to connect with fellow public radio nerds in an evening of lively but friendly competition. Gen Listen connects younger listeners and young at heart listeners with the station and with each other. Connect with us in person at HPR Gen Listen Trivia. Sign up to play at hawaiipublicradio.org slash genlisten. Index funds let you invest in a broad range of companies. They are hugely popular, but are they getting too powerful? The top four index funds alone, State Street, Vanguard, BlackRock, and Fidelity, they control about 25% of all of the stock of every public company. How index funds are shaping the American economy. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. A handful of films and museum exhibits have been made about the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. But few know about the 1,500 Japanese Americans in Hawaii who were evicted from their homes and businesses because of their ethnicity, but never imprisoned. That's the focus of a new documentary, Removed by Force, the eviction of Hawaii's Japanese Americans in World War II. Here's the opening of the film. December 7, 1941. The nation of Japan attacks Pearl Harbor. The United States enters World War II. Fueled by unfounded suspicions of disloyalty and wartime hysteria, over 2,000 Americans of Japanese ancestry from Hawaii were incarcerated in camps in both Hawaii and the U.S. mainland. At the same time, another egregious crime was committed by the U.S. government. About 1,500 Japanese Americans in Hawaii were forcibly removed from their homes and businesses. At gunpoint, military officials stormed into their homes and ordered their removal. These Japanese Americans were not incarcerated, but many lost their homes and never returned to their neighborhoods after the war ended. For over 50 years, these 1,500 Americans of Japanese ancestry in Hawaii kept silent about the violation of their civil rights. This is their story, and the story of their fight for justice. After being forcibly removed, some went to live with family and friends. 
Others were forced to find shelter elsewhere. Some made their home in the hills in thick brush around our islands. One family on Maui lived in a chicken coop. The film was directed by Hawaii-born filmmaker Ryan Kawamoto. The conversations Russell Subiono sat down with Kawamoto in our studio to talk about the film. The people that we focus on in this film, they're Americans of Japanese ancestry. They were not incarcerated or sent to camps mm -hmm. in Hawaii or the U.S. mainland, but they were evicted. They were evicted from their homes and their businesses in Hawaii in 23 different areas across the territory of Hawaii by the military, many at gunpoint, many with bayonets pointed in their faces and told to get out in less than 24 hours. And it was just people of Japanese heritage or Japanese Americans, right? No, no other ethnicities, you know, whatever, like Filipinos or Chinese, no other ethnicities were treated like this, right? Not in this way. There were other ethnicities that were also evicted, but often they had much more warning mm -hmm. when they had housing provided for them or other options provided for them, whereas the Japanese Americans, they were just kicked out. And when, when we think about the people that were forcibly removed and we kind of compare them to the people who ended up incarcerated or interned, when we look at the people in the camps, there are physical sites and documentation, right, to serve as a reminder that this happened, right? We think of places like Honouli Uli, and um, there's some other places even on the West Coast that served as internment camps, right? But for these 1,500 Japanese Americans or people of Japanese ancestry, for this group of 1,500, their story was almost lost to time, it seems like. In the film, you capture how their story was finally first brought to light. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, certainly. So in 1988, the Civil Liberties Act was passed by President Reagan. And this was the act that provided $20,000 of compensation and a letter of apology to those who were incarcerated during World War II. And of course, this was hard fought. It, it took over 10 years, probably 10 years plus, for, the, for this to even happen. So when Redress started, one of the main community organizers was the Japanese American Citizens League. And here in Honolulu, there's a chapter. And you know they would have workshops and help people fill out their forms to get redress. Well, at the time, Bill Koneko, who is one of the writers of the book and producers of the film, and it's based on his accounts, you know, he gets a phone call and he gets a phone call from a person named Dr. Kanemaru, who was formerly of Lua Lua Lei on the west side. And he talks about, you know, how his family, which was a family of farmers, they were evicted from Lua Lua Lei. And he said, well, we are we eligible? And, you know, JACL and their attorney, they were like, well, we've never heard of this before. No one has heard of this before. So let's 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 check. So they bring it up to the attention of the Department of Justice, to the Office of Redress Administration, the ORA, and ORA has never heard of these accounts before either. So it, it opened up a whole new set of what they call unique cases. And soon enough, they put out a press release and all of a sudden, hundreds and hundreds of, of people came out and started you know, saying, well, I lived here and I was evicted. I lived here and I was evicted or, you know, across the state. And ultimately, that the total of those people ended up being somewhere around 1,500, right? which is only about 500 less than the 2,000 that were interned from Hawaii, the 2,000? Uh, yeah, it was over 2,000, but it, they were both incarcerated in both Hawaii and the U.S. And the U.S., okay. Depending on, you know, if they're first generation or second generation yeah. and, and other factors as well, yeah. too. And I don't want to give away a lot of your film because something else happens in your film in this process that's that's kind of like this huge discovery is even when their story came to light, they still had obstacles to overcome with the redress, right? Well, geographically, there were 23 different areas. And a lot of times, you know, those cases weren't always granted redress. And so in some instances, they were rejected. And bear in mind that there were volunteer pro bono attorneys working on these cases right. to, to try to help help the different uh, groups get redress. And so uh, many obstacles because, w number one, there was really no documentation of who was evicted and who wasn't. In the camps, there was a roster, you know, physical roster of who was there. In these particular cases, they were evicted. <laughs> and so there wasn't really a record. But what they did find eventually were documents, government documents with various orders for various areas. So this was, was some of the evidence used, but also there were documents in other areas. So it became each each area actually became like a unique case. And that was a major obstacle, especially those that they couldn't find certain 
well, there was, for example, there was one one case on Maui, Pu'unene, and I, I believe the attorney said their, their case was rejected like seven times <laughs> before they finally got it. Yeah. And, and there's a really cool part in, in your film where they discover some of those documents and it's and it's a really cool part of your, of your film. And, and I think people will really enjoy it when they get there. As storytellers, we're always looking for these kinds of stories to tell, stories of the overlooked or the forgotten. Why did you choose to make this film? For the past, I would say about 15 years, I've been privileged to have worked on other films relating to the Japanese-American incarceration stories during World War II in Hawaii. So I had done two previous full-length documentaries with the Japanese Cultural Center of Hawaii. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have been very immersed in the history and the personal stories of, of what happened in Hawaii. But I always felt that this one would be, you know, one that really needs to be brought to light. And it, it wouldn't have been brought to light if not for Bill Koneko, mm -hmm. who authored a book with Sarah Lynn, also called Removed by Force, which is the basis for this film. You know, Bill has been working on this book for probably a decade based on their experiences you know, helping the various unique cases and, and the claimants get redressed. And, you know, I, I read it probably over the course of the pandemic and, you know, we were talking like, okay, yeah, I would love to work with you on this and let's let's bring it to light and let's let's really share these stories. And so we adapted the book and also went a little deeper and got more personal stories from, you know, some of the survivors or children of the survivors, as well as the pro bono attorneys involved in the cases. Do you feel a little bit like you were meant to do this job. I mean, I, I know you're you're of Japanese descent and you are a filmmaker and you're a local filmmaker. You grew up here and I know you went to UH Manoa. Do you feel like you were the right guy for the job for these films? Yeah, I've always been interested in Japanese American history in Hawaii. I mean, my senior thesis was on the 442nd 100th, you know, making a movie out of that actually. Maybe one day I'll get to do it. So I've always been in, interested in this time period and been fortunate to, you know, start working on you know, the World War II incarceration stories, and it, it continued on for, you know, many, many projects. So I do feel like this is sort of my calling, and I, I think it's very important to share these stories with the world. Because many of these Japanese Americans that were incarcerated or forcibly removed, they were American citizens who just happened to be of Japanese descent, and they experienced something so terrible at the hands of their own country, but still felt loyal to America while making this film, did you get a sense as to why they still felt loyal to America? Yeah, that's the amazing part of this story because I think a lot of them felt that because of the reparations, because of the apology, it was that was very important to them. I think what I learned is that that was more important to them than than any money. It was really the apology. And you know, a lot of them said that they feel like America is still the greatest country in the world because the government actually admitted that they were wrong and they apologized for it and they did reparations for it. So I think there are a great deal that, that, that have some, some closure to that and they don't harbor as much bitterness as, as you might think. What do you hope people will take away from the film? You know, one of the other parts of the story is that the people that really helped those with unique cases were members of the JCL Honolulu and members of Napaba. And they were all volunteer attorneys. And they were all young. That's something you probably saw in the, in the film. They were all like 30 or under or very young in their careers. And they all felt like, we're young. We can make a difference. We can change the world. And they did. And I hope the other message that comes through this film is that, you know, young people can really make a difference, especially when it comes to issues of social justice. Like if you see something that's wrong, you know, don't sit on the sidelines. You can do something about it. There's a lot of apathy in this world today in our culture, and I hope this film can serve as an example that people can make a difference. People can change things. Ryan Kawamoto, thanks for joining me today. The film is Removed by Force. Appreciate coming to the studio. Thank you so much. That was director Ryan Kawamoto talking with H.R.S. Russell Subiono about the new documentary, Removed by Force, the eviction of Hawaii's Japanese Americans in World War II. The film will screen at the Hawaii Convention Center on Thursday, August 17th and Saturday, August 19th. Uh, it will also screen at the Kauai Community Center and the Hawaii Japanese Center later this year. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website later today.
Hello, this is Sabrina Tavernisi, host of The Daily. Join us for an in-depth look at the world's biggest stories. Catch The Daily Monday through Thursday at 1.30 here on HPR One. On the next Fresh Air, Jason Moran is at the piano to play music that shows how he's drawn from early jazz, hip-hop, and the avant-garde. His latest album is his take on the music of James Reese Europe, the composer and musician who led the Harlem Hellfighters Regiment Band in World War I. Europe had a short but remarkable life. Join us. Fresh Air, beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Now it's time to compose the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Earlier we asked you about a man who was a prolific composer of Hawaiian music. His first hit song, Anale o Hawaii, was published in 1915 when he was 42. He had a varied career but was best known as a leader in music education and an authority on traditional Hawaiian songs. He taught at Kamehameha schools as well as local public schools. He also served as school inspector for the territory of Hawaii and conductor of the Royal Hawaiian Band. Original compositions like the Hawaiian Wedding Song became popular far beyond the Hawaiian Islands and did much to spread the popularity of Hawaiian music worldwide. His songbooks, King's Book of Hawaiian Melodies, King's Songs of Hawaii, and King's Songs of Honolulu are all considered classics. If you know your Hawaiian music history, you know we're talking about Charles E. King, one of the inaugural inductees into the Hawaiian Music Hall of Fame. Congrats to Lonnie from Volcano. You are our winner today. And that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Barbershop music has its roots in the places where you would go to get your hair cut. Here in Hawaii, there are groups like Sounds of Aloha Chorus for Men and Naleolani Chorus, a chapter of the Sweet Adelines International for Women. And this weekend is an opportunity for you to enjoy the a cappella songs in an event at the Hawaii Theater focused on Broadway classics. Here's a little something to get you in the mood. Shakespeare and be quite elite, and you can charm the critics but won't ever eat. Just sip a banana, feel the fall at your feet. Make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh. Don't you know everyone wants to laugh, wants to laugh. My dad said someday go for the gold. Do it before you're too old. Pretending you're a dancer with grace You wiggle till they're giggling all over the place And then you get a great big custard pie in the face Pretty good for a rehearsal. We caught up with sounds of Aloha Chorus Director Bryce Irvine at that evening run-through. Last week, we were in the basement of the United Church of Christ. On August 12th at 7.33 p.m. at Hawaii Theater, we are going to be doing a show, Broadway Through the Years. It is a Broadway-themed show. If you can tell by the title, we have lots of songs from like West Side Story, Damn Yankees, um, and even even stuff from other very famous musicals. Phantom of the Opera is one of the songs that we're going to be doing. So there's a lot of really fun, popular Broadway songs that everyone loves. And I know uh, during the pandemic, a lot of events were kind of put on hold. Or, and I understand that you folks did a number of Zoom events. But this will be kind of a special event. You've got folks coming in also from the mainland. 
Yes, the Zoom thing was very interesting. I don't know if you've ever tried to sing with 30 other guys on Zoom, but it's quite impossible. But we had a fun time meeting, keeping contact with everybody that we know. It was really, really good to just stay in touch. One of the things that's really great about this show, like you said, we have some guest artists coming in from the mainland. We're part of a bigger society called the Barbershop Harmony Society. And in 2018, a quartet, four guys, won the International Barbershop Quartet Championship. Those guys, are going to be coming to our show. After Hours is the name of that quartet. If you want to look them up on YouTube, on Instagram, they're an amazing quartet, a bunch of young guys, and they just happen to sing a bunch of Broadway music. So I thought it'd be very appropriate to have them over on our show. And so the group that rehearses here on Thursday night, you've got a pretty large company here. It's pretty large. We would like it to be larger. I think on average we, we get about 20 to 25 guys a night, which is fantastic. We have a lot of guys who are coming from all over the place. Uh, I myself live on the windward side of the island in Kailua. We have guys driving all the way out from Eva Beach. So it's a very big spread of guys, but we love hanging out with each other and it's, it's really fun to get together on these Thursday nights. So what got you hooked? I got hooked when I was 10 years old. I am a former member of the Honolulu Boy Choir and in 2002, a quartet from this course named the Tropicords came over and they promoted the annual show. And I got to go see the Sounds of Aloha annual show at Hawaii Theater back in 2003, I believe. And I've been hooked ever since. I joined the chorus my senior year. I had enough free classes and my parents were like, as long as you can get rides to rehearsal and back home, uh, we'll let you do it. So I've been a member since 2010. And your members, I mean, they were on the gabbit. Older, younger? Older, younger. I think the youngest guy we got right now is 20... Two, I believe. Uh, he is also the grandson of the oldest member of our chorus, who is, uh, I believe, in his 90s. Uh, so we have all, all of that age range. We have doctors, lawyers, marketing people. We have uh, school teachers, former educators. We have so many different varieties of, of careers and, and people that get to meet up all for the purpose of just singing together. Yeah, And it's just for the love of barbershop. It's the love of barbershop, the love of music. A lot of times this is the only music that guys get during the week unless they go to church or some other group. We have a couple guys who are involved in other groups but for the most part this is the only singing that our guys do all week. And so uh, this event that you've got, uh, you also have a special guest, Shari Lynn. Ah, uh, yes, yeah, Shari Lynn. How could I forget? Shari is an amazing, amazing human being. She has been a part of our shows in the past. So we thought it was very appropriate for her being a, a Broadway kind of star in our local theaters. We should invite her to perform her Broadway thing. So we're very, very happy to have Shari in our show as well. What do people need to know then if they want to come catch uh, this event? So if you want to come catch the event, you have to go to soundsofaloha.org. You can go on to that website and you can find where to buy tickets. You can also go to Hawaii Theater, the website there. You can also call the theater. I don't know the number off, my, off the top of my head, but if you call the theater, somebody at the box office can help you. We are expecting to have a really good crowd. I know there's a big Broadway community here. So if you're interested in coming to hear some Broadway music, maybe sung in a style you've never heard before, I think it'd be very interesting and we would love to have you guys out. So the Sounds of Aloha is a nonprofit organization. So a lot of these proceeds goes to help just pay for the theater, help pay our sound people, our lighting, our production team, and it helps to keep the chorus alive. We don't have very many uh, sources of income, so this is one of our bigger sources. So if you would like to support a local arts organization, this is a place to do it. All right, okay, so the date again? The date is gonna be August 12th. 733 and it's 33 because our chorus is a very funny thing where every year we put the last digit of the year and we add it on to the time so it's really 730 but 733 is the time that's going to be on your ticket it's a very funny little quirky thing that we do okay. i like quirky but thank you so much yeah thank you so much for having me and we leave you with sounds from the international barbershop winners the group is called after hours and get your week started Sound of music, the hills are alive with songs they have sung for a thousand years. The hills fill my heart with the sound of music. With music, my heart wants to sing every song. 
does it for us today. Tomorrow we hear about the latest efforts to get a desalination plant up and running here on Oahu. Do you have a story idea to share with us? Call our talk back line 808-792-8217. You can find the conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.